Reflections on William Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 In scene 3 we go to the Greek side and the Greeks are having their problems. Achilles, Patroclus, and the Myrmidons have abandoned the Greek cause. Uh, they're staying in their tents and uh, there's fraction among the Greeks and so on. So what the, the Greek leaders are saying, what's going on here? What can we do? And they get up, Agamemnon, Nestor, and Ulysses get up and try to address the problem. And, they, and Agamemnon is the leader. The checks and disasters, he says, are indeed naught else but the protractive trials of great Jove to find persistive constancy in men. And then he goes on, the fineness of which metal is not found in fortune's love, when things are going well. For then the bold and coward, the wise and fool, the artist and unread, the hard and soft, seem all affined and kin. In smooth times, things are going well. The, the, the brave and the cowardly, you can't tell them apart. And, the, and the, learned, the wise and the stupid, it's hard to tell apart, except in a crunch. So he says, but in the wind and tempest, of her frown, fortune's frown, distinction with a broad and powerful fan puffing it all winnows the light away and what hath mass or matter by itself lies rich in virtue and unmingled. In other words, this hardship, this war creates distinctions. We can then tell who is brave and who is wise and who is stupid and who is cowardly and that helps us sort our cultural life out. We need these kind of moments because these moments and what he's talking about war, he's talking about war. War is a sacrificial ritual. What he's saying is the sacrificial ritual is the engine of cultural distinctions. With due observance of thy godlike seat, great Agamemnon, Nestor shall apply thy latest words because they're so dense and obscure that Nestor says, well, let me try to uh, popularize what you just said. And Nestor puts it in 11 words. In the reproof of chance lies the true proof of men. And then he goes on, the sea being smooth, how many shallow bobble boats dare sail upon her ancient breast, making their way with those of nobler bulk? But let the ruffian Boreas once enrage the gentle Thetis and anon behold the strong rib bark through liquid mountains cut, bounding between two, the two moist elements like Perseus's horse. Where's then the saucy boat whose, whose weak, untimbered sides, but even now co-rivaled greatness, either to harbor fled or made a toast for Neptune? Even so, he says, even so doth valor's show and valor's worth divide in storms of fortune. In other words, this sacrificial ritual, which, we, which is war, war is, an war is a large and largely unrecognized sacrificial ritual, generates the distinctions that we require. When we come home from war, we have people, some are dead, some are wounded, some are, uh, have shown themselves as cowards, and some get promotions, and et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it's, a, it's the engine for creating cultural distinctions. We can tell 
just exactly as Agamemnon said, the bold from the coward, the wise from the fool, the artist from the unread, the hard from the soft. And without it, we could not. We must have those distinctions in play. And Ulysses, uh, equally obsequious in a way, says, well, uh, I know that you're both very wise. Let me try my hand at sorting this thing out. He says, Troy yet upon his basis had been down, and the great Hector's sword had lacked a master, but for these instances, the specialty of rule hath been neglected. Shakespeare relies on, uh, on um, Chaucer for his story, but, the, but I think in order to find the original seed of the, the speech on degree in Troilus and Cressida, we have to go back to Homer's Iliad. You remember in the Iliad, there's a, a moment when the Greek commander Agamemnon ha concocts a plot because there's a lot of restlessness. Greeks want to go home. He says to his generals, look, I will go out and tell them, uh, I think we better go home. And you generals get up one at a time and, and give these great patriarch speeches about how could we possibly go home and our, our wives would laugh us out of the house and all. We've got to stay and fight and all that. So he choreographs this thing. I'll say we'll go home. You give the patriotic speech. You will rally them with your rhetoric, and we'll all be together again. So on the basis of this ruse, he goes out, and he takes the staff, which was the symbol of authority, and in, which they held up in the, in the councils when they were talking, and he leans on the staff, a, a revealing uh, Homeric metaphor. He leans on the staff and lies to them. And... As one of these Greek generals gets up and clears his throat, everybody runs to the ship. And uh, the whole thing starts to fall apart. And it looks like everything's going uh, to be lost. Odysseus, which is the Greek name for Ulysses, who's giving this speech in, in uh, Troilus and Cressida, Odysseus snatches the, the, the staff out of Agamemnon's hand. And here's how, the, here's how it goes in the Iliad. Wheeling close to the silent figure of Agamemnon, Odysseus relieved him of his great dynastic staff, then ran toward the ship. And he stand, finally gets in front of everybody, and he stands up and holds up the staff. He says, let there be one commander, one authority, holding his royal staff in precedence from Zeus, the son of crooked-minded Kronos, one to command the rest. Now, this is very... Filled with irony. He's saying, there's only one can hold this staff I'm holding. It's Agamemnon. And the reason that is, is because that order of things has been ordained by Zeus, which is to say, we must never challenge the existing king. And that, or, that order of things has been ordained by Zeus, who happens to be the son of crooked-minded Kronos a reminder that Zeus overthrew his father. Girard says, each cultural form is founded on the repudiation of an anterior form. But once we realize that, we, the whole myst mystical basis for it is undercut. And the irony here is exactly that. But then it goes on. This is not quite working. And Odysseus finds Thersites, who will play a part in this play, Thersites is in a mimetic relationship with Achilles. Achilles begins to criticize Agamemnon, 
And Thersites, who's this disreputable wretch, begins to criticize Agamemnon. He thinks, well, if he can get away with it, I can get away with it. And he starts making these scurrilous comments about the commander-in-chief. And Odysseus takes the staff and beats Thersites with it, revealing the origin of that staff. For all of those who thought it was a gavel, it's a bludgeon. The origin of the staff was a bludgeon. And it only becomes a gavel when the culture is humming along. And it will return to a bludgeon when the things start to fall apart. Exactly that. It says, at this he struck Thersites sharply with his staff on ribs and shoulders. The poor devil quailed and a welling tear fell from his eyes. A scarlet welt raised by the golden studded staff sprang out from his back. Then cowering down in fear and pain, he blinked like an imbecile and wiped his tears upon his arms. The soldiers, for all their irritation, fell to laughing at the man's disarray. The soldiers, for all their irritation, began to chuckle. We're going to talk about laughter here in a little bit. They began to laugh at the man's disarray. And that is the reconvening of the Greek cause. A little sacrificial, this is, the, this is the hair of the dog that bit you. It's a little sacrificial ritual at the expense of Thersites. And suddenly, the, everybody is laughing together. And all we need now is somebody to say, hey, guys, now that we're laughing together, let's go over there and whip the Trojans. It's an unbelievable revelation of the, of, of, of the stuff at the heart of the cultural operation. I gave this uh, presentation on Tuesday night. And on Wednesday, I sat down with my sandwich in the middle of the day to, to read the New York Times. On the front page of the New York Times on Wednesday is a picture of a, a crowd in Estonia. And I will read the caption of the picture. I'll show you the picture there, and I'll read the caption of the picture. Anti-independence protesters stormed parliament buildings yesterday in Latvia and Estonia. Demonstrators in Estonia used the staff of a Soviet flag to batter the door of the parliament building. Now, you see, these are people who are trying to stop the stampede. These are people who don't want to leave the Confederation. They're trying to reverse the stampede away from the Confederation using the staff of the flag as a battering ram. Now, it ha it's absolutely identical to the Homeric presentation. Well, I could hardly catch my breath, and I looked around. I, we could spend the rest of the day on the front page of Wednesday's New York Times. The article just to the right of that was uh, our chief justice uh, saying that we must eliminate these appeals of the death penalty cases. Otherwise, we're going to have chaos. We have to be able to proceed much more quickly to execution and eliminate these legal constraints. And then there is a story about a Van Gogh painting being sold for $82.5 million. Now, here's the gist of it. At a New York sale, a Japanese gallery paid eighty. $4.5 million for a painting Van Gogh painted six weeks before his suicide. Now, there's something in that, folks. There is something in that, and it has to do with the crisis of distinction. 
I think all of those stories have to do with the crisis of distinction. It's not all bad news. Another story was how somebody who had, who had experienced sexual, uh, 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 gender dis discrimination was uh, uh, rewarded with a, uh, with a promotion and so on. So that the, the, it, the, the, the discriminating features are falling. And sometimes it's very good. Apartheid is falling. Those old systems of the good old boy network is falling. And so, the, so we, be, we become, we are eliminating discrimination. But you read the other articles and you realize that we are becoming, that we're increasingly living in an indiscriminate uh, cultural environment. There's, there's good news and bad news. Ulysses says the problem is the specialty of rule has been neglected. And then he goes on to give his famous uh, speech on uh, degrees. When that the general is not like the hive to whom the foragers shall all repair, what honey is expected? We've lost coherence. We've lost our sense of common purpose. Degree being visored, the unworthiest shows as fairly in the mask. In other words, uh, you can't tell the the important people from the unimportant people, the good from the bad, the wise from the stupid, the brave from the cowardly, etc. Exactly what Agamemnon had said. Agamemnon had said this uh, sacrificial ritual, which we call war, is its central purpose is to generate these distinctions and keep them in play. And Ulysses is, say, is saying uh, the distinctions are falling apart right here in the midst of the ritual that's supposed to generate them. And then he goes on to explain how it works. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place, insist your course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet Saul in noble eminence enthroned and sphered amidst the other whose medicinable eye corrects the influence of evil planets and posts like the commandments of a king, sans check to good and bad, etc. But when the planets and evil mixture to disorder wander, what plagues and what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of the earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate the unity and married calm of states quite from their fixture collapse of these of the distinctions in other words we don't we no longer know who is to be led who's the, who the leaders are who is to be emulated who we're to follow what the rules are uh, we we can't tell anymore then everything falls apart oh when degree is shaken which is the ladder of all high designs the enterprise is sick how could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenity and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place? Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing, each thing meets in mere oppugnancy. The unbounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force 
should be right or rather right and wrong between whose endless jar justice resides should lose their names and so should justice too. In other words, we would have chaos. Chaos. If we don't know who is to be obeyed, what the rules are, where everybody's place is in the social order, if that falls apart, it's chaos. Everything will be arbitrary then. There'll be no measuring anything. Everything will be in flux. And what happens when there are no distinctions? Then the only thing left is uh, the, the mimetic competition for distinctions. Then everything includes itself in power, power into will and will into appetite, and appetite and universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce an universal prey and last eat up himself. So that's the problem. And then he puts his finger exactly on the nature of the crisis precipitated by the, the, the dissolving of the distinction. This neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. Without these distinctions, we're in quicksand. Every time we move to try to get out, we get further in. By a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. Everybody, every time somebody tries to get an advantage on somebody else who looks like they might be above you, that attempt to get an advantage further dissolves what little is left of the, of the distinctions in culture. So you, more and more people say, you hear more and more often the words, what right have you to whatever it is? The generals disdained by him one step below, he by the next, that next by him beneath. So every step, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. I would like for you to commit that to memory. That is the answer to the question, what does Gerard mean by uh, mimetic, the mimetic crisis, mimetic rivalry? You see, this need to have to know who we are is, a, is always lived out, almost always lived out in terms of the social order. We know who we are vis-a-vis. -vis. Now, the, the biblical revelation, the Christian revelation, is an attempt to have us uh, come to know who we are in some other way, see? To, to, to live God-centered lives and be freed of that vis-a-vis. -vis. But, but in actual fact, we live as though the question, who am I, is a question that can be solved vis-a-vis -vis the social order. And since that's the anxiety we walk around with, we're constantly looking around for how do I, how, where am I in all this? Where am I? Above, below, better, worse, coming along okay, uh, getting the competitive edge, whatever it is. And if the distinctions aren't in place, then it becomes a free-for-all. The generals disdained by him one step below, he by the next, the next by him beneath. So every step exampled, see mimesis, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. And Agamemnon says, well, you have 
you, you, you have pointed out, you have diagnosed the sickness. Now, he says, what's the cure? And Ulysses says, the great Achilles, whom opinion crowns the sinew and forehand of our host, having his ear full of his airy fame, grows dainty of his worth, and in his tent lies mocking our design. With him Patroclus, upon a lazy bed the live long day, breaks scurl jest, and with ridiculous and silly action, which slander he imitation calls, he pageants us. Achilles and Patroclus and the Myrmidons are over there in their tents, lolling around, making fun of Agamemnon and the rest of the Greeks, just joking about their ridiculousness. And it says here, <clears throat> which slander he imitation calls. And it will seem, the imitation of what the Greeks are doing will seem like slander if it's performed by those who are outside the myth. If we imitate, in other words, if you take, take some great event that has been recorded on film, like, like, like the newsreels of the, of the 50s, 40s and 50s, and replace the soundtrack with music from the Grateful Dead. And what happens is that that great and noble event suddenly starts to appear completely ludicrous. Replace it with a Bob Dylan soundtrack. It's ludicrous. The same thing. It's imitation. In other words, it could be exactly the same film. In that sense, a perfect imitation, but a different soundtrack. And it's slander. Now it's slander instead of imitation. You see what's happening here? This is, this is an imitation that's being done from outside the myth. And it looks like slander. And then he goes on. Now, now just listen to this. He says, this is what... Achilles is doing. Sometime, great Agamemnon, thy topless deputation he puts on, meaning Patroclus is the one who's acting all this out for, for uh, 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 Achilles' amusement. Sometime, great Agamemnon, thy topless deputation he puts on, and like a strutting player whose conceit lies in his hamstring, and doth think it rich to bear the wooden dialogue and sound twixt his stretched footing and the scaffoldage, such to be pitied and o'erresting seeming, he acts thy greatness in. And when he speaks, tis like a chime amending with terms unsquared, which from the tongue of roaring Typhon dropped would seem hyperbole. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like a stage performance, does it not? You know what he's talking about here? Shakespeare is doing what, you, what Ulysses is accusing Patroclus of doing. Exactly that. Performing it all and poking fun at it. In other words, he's saying, look what they're doing over there. They have these strutting players, and you can hear their feet on the boards, and, it's, and they're just poking fun at us. And the guy who's saying that is strutting around, <laughs> clomping his feet on the boards. See? Unless we... See, that keeps us from taking this... Ulysses' speech too seriously. He, Ulysses is absolutely right about the crisis of degree. But it's not because Shakespeare is a, is a Tory conservative. Shakespeare understands things much deeper than that. And then Ulysses says, oh, that's wonderful, Patroclus. Now show us Nestor, you know. And Nestor stroking his beard and going on and on and on and on in some speech, you know. 
And Patroclus does that, and Achilles loves it. And then Achilles says, excellent, tis Nestor writes. Now play me, Patroclus, arming to answer in a night alarm. And Patroclus now plays Achilles, just as foolishly. And Ulysses, describing this whole event, says, and at this sport, Sir Valor dies. Speaking of Ulysses cries, oh, enough, Patroclus, or give me ribs of steel, I shall split all in pleasure of my spleen. And in this fashion, our abilities, gifts, nature, shapes, etc., etc., what is, what is not, serves as stuff for these to, to make paradoxes. Here, the word paradox means parody. They're laughing at us over this. They're laughing at us over this. Which, by the way, is what sometimes we do right here. That is to say, we laugh at the cults, at the main cultures. We laugh at what's going on in the center stage of the main cultural arena. Shame on us. I'm the one that's guilty, not you. Not shame on us, but I mean, I just want to put this in perspective. Uh, this is something that intellectuals do. You see? Remember what it's, remember that in Jewish Caesar, uh, somebody reported Cicero. So he spoke Greek and he smiled and winked at his, at his sophisticated friend. It's that kind of chuckling. In this play, Achilles, and uh, all of them really, but Achilles is just a fat, slovenly, brutish, dumb creature. But what he's doing is done often in our time uh, by intellectuals who are, uh, who are politically uh, on the right side, we would say. In other words, uh, people who see through the myth that's going on, on in the center ring. Gerard has a discussion in one place about tragedy and comedy, and he says, of course, they're not as distinct as we might think, nor are tears and laughter as distinct as we might think. Laughter, in fact, is an attempt to ward off something that is vaguely seen as threatening. And he says this, he who laughs last laughs best. The simplest forms of comedy show clearly this equalizing effect of laughter, which never fails to be present whenever he who is laughed at and he who laughs are not separated by some artificial barrier, such as the barrier between the stage and the audience in the theater. A man falls on the ice. Also on the ice is another man who laughs so hard that he loses his balance and brings down his own fall. The second man is funnier than the first. The third one might be funnier still, unless, of course, it is myself. Elliot and Little Gidding spoke of conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. In a weakening cultural consensus, this scoffing laughter can become mimetically contagious and spread, causing the few remaining distinctions and among them, the distinction between the laughers and those laughed at, to collapse, at which point nothing is funny anymore. And Ulysses speaks of, of uh, Achilles over there laughing at one moment after he himself is depicted as foolish. It says, at this sport, Sir Valor dies cries, oh, enough, Patroclus, or give me ribs of steel, I shall split all in pleasure of my spleen. It's an interesting phrase, in pleasure of my spleen. 
And Nestor says, oh, I get it. I get it. We're talking about mimesis. Am I getting it? Nestor's a little slow. Ulysses, I think I understand it. We're talking about mimesis, are we not? Nestor says, in the imitation of these twain, he's talking about Achilles and Patroclus, in the imitation of these twain, who, as Ulysses says, opinion crowns with an imperial voice, many are infect. Many have begun to imitate them and laugh at us. Ajax, he says. Remember Ajax, the, the, the completely mimetic creature? Ajax is grown self-willed and bears his head in such a reign in full as proud a place as broad Achilles keeps his tent like him. You see this? Sort of, he's begun to... He's begun to decorate his tent up this way, the way Achilles has his tent all decorated up, you see. Keeps his tent like him. Makes factious feasts like Achilles does. Rails on our state of war, bold as an oracle. So others begin to pick it up. Ajax picks it up. He's quick to pick it up. And then it says, and Ajax, when Ajax does that, he says, and sets Thersites, who's the despicable wretch, Thick sets Thersites, a slave whose gall coins slanders like a mint, to match us in comparisons with dirt, to weaken and discredit our exposure, how rank soe'er rounded in, with, rounded in with danger. So it goes from Achilles to Ajax to Thersites. It's spreading. The chuckling is spreading until it exhausts its uh, it, the, the capital on which, it, on which it's chuckling. That is to say, until everybody gets converted to the chuckle, and then nothing's funny anymore. Gerard says, our intellectual fetishes conserve a semblance of reality only in function of a stabilized order, only as long as others remain who respect the prohibitions that we transgress. So as soon as everybody's converted to the, to the point of view of the, of the laughers, it all stops being funny. Yesterday's Press Democrat uh, ran a column by Ellen Goodman about somebody I never heard of, Andrew Dice Clay. He's apparently a, a comedian that is now breaking into, uh, into uh, ordinary television circles. Uh, apparently he was uh, marginal, playing clubs and so on, and now he's uh, on Saturday Night Live being interviewed by Vanity Fair and is about to, uh, uh, 20th Century Fox is about to come out with a film. And she says, what is happening when Andrew Dice Clay sells a relentless string of ethnic, racial, and sexual attacks as humor? What is happening when the heavy metal group Guns N' Roses sells its hatred of blacks? When Public Enemy, name of another group, I guess, parades its anti-Semitism? Their fans praise them for the frankness of their racial slurs, the, quote, honesty of their sexual hatred for telling it like it is. And she talks about this as being a backlash against uh, tolerance. Last comment from Ellen Goodman. How can the free speech people oppose letting it all hang out? Those who defended Lenny Bruce when he told the judge, let me do my own act, can feel as trapped by their principles as an ACLU lawyer defending the Ku Klux Klan. Unchallenged and unchecked, hostility can grow like kudzu, overwhelming everything else exactly what's being depicted here. The laughing starts innocently enough, and then its sinister underside starts to come through, and you realize we're in the crisis of distinctions, and it's, and, and it's, and it's laced with hostility. What's happened here is an, 
is an elaborate discussion about the nature of the sacrificial ritual. That is to say, the sacrificial ritual generates distinctions. We have to have it. We have to endure it, Agamemnon says, because this is the only thing we have for generating distinctions, for figuring out how many stripes you have on your arm, for figuring out what your prestige situation is vis-a-vis -vis when we get back home. We need this ritual to provide that. And uh, Ulysses says, here's what happens when we don't have distinctions, when it all falls apart, which is happening. The very ritual that's supposed to be producing distinctions is actually dissolving them. And at that moment, to underscore it, Aeneas arrives from the Trojan camp in order to challenge uh, a Greek uh, warrior to meet Hector one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And he comes in, he wants to deliver the challenge to the commander-in-chief. And he comes in and he says, where's Agamemnon? And uh, of course, Agamemnon's standing right in front of him. And he's talking to Agamemnon. And he says, would you please tell me where Agamemnon is? And Agamemnon says, well, you can just tell us what you're after. He says, I have something for Agamemnon's ears only. Which is a funny way of saying, after all this talk about distinctions, that the ultimate distinction they're talking about, absolutely invisible to Aeneas, coming in from the other culture. Remember I said, one of the ways you bring this, these, this cultural project back together again, when you get people like Troilus, who are abandoning the, the cultural cause for their own, for their own private uh, projects to acquire their desired uh, objects. You bring them together by superimposing them. Well, here's how it's done here. Aeneas says, if there be one among the fairest of Greece that holds his honor higher than his ease, that seeks his praise more than he fears his peril, that knows his valor and knows not his fear, that loves his mistress more than in confession, with truant vows to her own lips he loves, and dare avow her beauty and her worth in other arms than hers, a little pun on the word arm, to him this challenge. Hector, in view of Greek, excuse me, Hector, in view of Trojans and Greeks, see, everything is done out there where we can, this is all performed, in view of everybody, this is entirely vis-a-vis. -vis. Everything is vis-a-vis. -vis. In view of Trojans and of Greeks, Hector shall make it good or do his best to do it. He hath a lady, wiser, fairer, truer, than ever Greek did compass in his arms. And will tomorrow with his trumpet call midway between our tents and walls of Troy to rouse a Grecian that is true in love. If any, Hector will honor him. If none, he'll say in Troy when he retires, the Grecian dames are sunburnt and not worth the splinter of a lance, even so much. See what Shakespeare is doing here? He's just superimposing these two things. And Agamemnon says, well, we have some lovers, but we have mostly soldiers. But then he says, but we, but we are soldiers, and may that soldier a mere recreant prove that means not, hath not, and is not in love. The whole system of mimetic desire is all tangled up together here. The question for both the Greeks and the Trojans is how to get the dropouts back in the game. The centrifugal force of modern culture is so weak that millions are drifting away from the cultural enterprise in favor of their own desire and rivalry projects. Armies of revivalists are now trying to salvage some kind of cultural cohesion either to surcharge the gravitational field 
a war, a challenge, the moral equivalent of war, some great cause, or to align individual projects with the cultural one. All of it is being done in order to try to salvage uh, some kind of cultural cohesion. Here's one of the most amazing things and disturbing things in Girard's writing. It is the destiny of modern culture, of the modern end of all culture in the historical sense, to live all successive moments, including delirium, in relative lucidity, so as to arrive at a true death of the cultural, which then should reveal its entire truth if our thought does not perish with it. What's important is that we develop the ability to remain sane without the cultural apparatus, which is responsible for the, 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 the mental state we now call sanity. In other words, metanoia, what, what, what the Greek uh, word from the New Testament for a transformation, conversion, metanoia means a, a completely new sensibility. And now, in, in light of what Girard is talking about here, we're not talking about metanoia as an alternative to you know, a middle-class mentality. We're talking about metanoia as an alternative to madness. We are environmental creatures, which is to say we are mimetic creatures. The question is, in what environment can we begin to acquire mental and emotional sensibilities that are sufficiently independent of the culturally crucial system of distinctions to be able to survive the disintegration of that system that is now occurring? The answer is, I think, the ecclesia, the Greek word for church, which means those who have been called out. The ecclesia where we can all become apprentices of agape, which is astoundingly unconditional love. A love that does not depend upon the distinctions and the cultural mechanisms that generate and maintain them. In fact, agape is, as Glenn Tinder pointed out in the December 1989 Atlantic Monthly, precisely the refusal to participate in what he termed the harsh process of mutual scrutiny which is indispensable to the ordinary life of culture as we know it. Gerard says, how to live without prohibitions, without sacrificial misrecognitions, and without scapegoat victims. This is the real problem. When he says uh, sacrificial misrecognitions, what he's talking about is the, uh, the attempt to extricate ourselves from sacrificial systems which are themselves replications of the sacrificial system. Now, that is to say, if we try, it's, it's, it, again, it's like quicksand. If, if we try to get out of the sacrificial system in the way that comes natural to us, we'll simply get back into it. If we challenge them in the, in the same old dialectical way, we'll simply have another version of them. And every version from now on becomes more contorted and finally in the end bloodier than the one before. So it's no longer a question of simply opposing an existing sacrificial system with the sensibilities that have been bred into us by that system. 
we have to find some, we have to get out of that altogether. So he says, how to survive without prohibitions, without sacrificial misrecognitions, without scapegoat victims. This is the real problem, and it is in order to avoid confronting it that our modern rituals of rebellion are perpetuated. This is how I see it. Victory over evil was definitively achieved at the crucifixion. The gospel tradition, unwittingly to be sure, has been dismantling, and that's a, that's a good term by the way, dismantling, because uh, the mantle is that which both conceals and aggrandizes. The gospel tradition has been dismantling the cultural structures ever since. The anthropological revolution represented by the cross has been poorly realized, but in keeping with the supreme paradox of its truth, the opacity and hesitancy of its, of its revelation has been historically a blessing. And further testimony to the gentleness and essential reticence of its salvific task. But it seems to me these are the relevant facts. First is that the victory of the cross is definitive and secure. And the second is that ultimately culture as we know it will become impossible. Contemporary signs indicate a rather less remote date for that eventuality than has heretofore been suspected. Thirdly, to the degree that mimetic responses to the question of meaning continue to dominate our social lives, the crumbling of the cultural forms and the prohibitions and sacrificial protections along with them will be accompanied by more, not less, violence, confusion, and madness. And lastly, those not given to reticence and patience might be reminded that anyone claiming the privilege of Christian revelation who delights, and underscore the word delights, in depriving others unprepared for the deprivation of whatever sacrificial protections their culture still provides them, must be prepared to behave as a Christian when the mobs start looking for victims. So that all leads me finally to a greater appreciation for the words that Shakespeare put into the mouth of Lear when he and Cordelia were about to be led away to prison. He said, when thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news and we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies and we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon.